Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Always excited to be here today to talk about, in this case today, Apostle Elder Quentin L. Cook. And one of the things I'd start with today, just I think because it's so fun, it was a fire drill at Logan, Utah Elementary School. It doesn't tell us what elementary school, but a Logan, Utah Elementary School. And fire drill captain Joe Cook, a stalwart sixth grade student leader, was determined to post a good time, meaning a good time, to evacuate the building. He was pleased when, at the ringing of the alarm, students began to evacuate the building rapidly. This will be a record-setting time, young Joe thought. We're going to go down in history. Then, just as fame seemed to be within his grasp, Joe heard the announcement. Someone is still in the building. The building is not clear. As record-breaking time ebbed away, Joe Cook finally saw one lone first grader emerge from the building. It was his little brother, Quentin. Joe had been denied the rightful place in Cache Valley history by his own flesh and blood. Fuming, Joe barked, what on earth were you doing? Quentin held up a large pair of worn boots and said, Joe, you know that, and he mentioned a friend's name, sometimes has to wear hand-me-down shoes that are too big for him. When the fire drill rang, he took off running and ran right out of these. He didn't want to ruin the drill, so he left them and ran outside barefoot. I went back to get his boots for him because I didn't want his feet to be cold in the snow. So there's uh, Quentin L. Cook as a young first grader uh, already demonstrating his love for others. Here's another one, uh, and I'll share this, that uh, Elder Cook's good friend Lee Burke once said of him, that I have known Quentin all of my life and he has never done anything that would dishonor himself or his family or the church. And I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful legacy of light and love that Elder Cook has has uh, demonstrated throughout his life of doing the right thing, choosing the right, and letting his light shine. Now, although Elder Cook grows up as the great-great-grandson of Elder Heber C. Kimball, actually his mother, you know, his mother is, and that, that through that Kimball line, his mother is faithful and active. But his father's not active in the church. He grows up in a home where dad was not involved. His dad was Vernon Cook. His mother was Bernice Kimball Cook. Um, but, Although his father wasn't an active member, he was influential in Elder Cook's life. And I love this, that his father had three rules. And this is how the Cooks grew up. First, we had to have worthwhile goals. Second, we could change our goals at any time. But third, whatever goal we were choosing, we had to work at it diligently, he said. Now, Elder Cook grew up with wonderful parents and became very involved in many... I would say many different interests in life, everything from academics to sports to student government and leadership. In fact, as a young man, he loved sports. 
He helped his high school teams win statewide recognition in basketball and football. He was the quarterback on the football team. He was a forward on the basketball team. He ran the 440, or as we say, the 400 today in track. He played basketball, debate, politics, all of it. He was involved 100% in every way. In fact, in er if we talked about early politics for a minute, as a 16-year-old, he was one of two young men uh, elected to represent the state of Utah at what we would call Boys Nation. In fact, he's able to go to Boys Nation with his good friend Lee Burke. And while in Washington, D.C., as a 16-year-old, Elder Cook had the opportunity to meet U.S. Presidents Dwight D. Eisenhower, we'll say current and future presidents, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard M. Nixon, and Gerald Ford. And seeing them at work in the lawmaking process impressed Elder Cook deeply. And he thought, you know what I'm going to do? I am going into law for sure. I'm going to study law. And so Elder Cook, you know, kind of has that in mind if that's where he's going to head. Now, his brother Joe at this point is about 20 years old and Quentin is about, is about 15. The Korean War has broke out and missionaries are limited. It's The church is limited in how many missionaries they can send out. And it's usually one missionary per ward per year. And so Joe didn't think he would have the opportunity to serve a mission, but that opportunity does come to him. And there's this great talk of, okay, I'm gonna if I serve a mission, should I serve a mission? Do I do I do this? And there was a lot of discussions going on between Joe and, and Quentin and, and their father. They respected their father so much, and so they really wanted to follow his counsel. But dad's counsel was don't go on a mission. If you really want to go to medical school, I think you could Im I think you could impact more people as a doctor than you probably could as a missionary. So they were having some great discussions. Now, a few years ago, Sherry Dew interviewed Elder Cook, and he shared this, he shared this experience. You've told the story about how when you were 15, mm -hmm. your brother Joe was trying to decide if he's going to go on a mission. Yeah. And there was some question about it because your father was maybe encouraging a little bit of uh, at least consideration for med school. Right. And so he was debating, and... You've told the story about some interaction you had with your brother. Will you tell us that story and and what the outgrowth was for you? Uh, my brother was uh, and is has uh, just a tremendous influence in my life, and he's five years older than than I am. And in 1955, when I was 15 years old, he was 20. The church uh, had an understanding uh, with the draft board at the national level sure. mm -hmm. that only one young man in each ward could go on a mission. And in our ward, somebody went out in January, and my brother didn't turn 20 until September. We didn't think he'd be able to go. And then the bishop and stake president came to him and said, uh, one of the wards hasn't sent anybody out. Uh, we know that your father's not active in the church. We're not going to uh, call you, but would you go home and discuss with your family uh, this uh, opportunity. Uh, he came. My mother uh, loved the church, faithful in the church. You could tell that she was desperately wanted him to go. And But my father, who uh, never had any bad habits, wonderful man, uh, but not active in the, in the church, uh, very uh, 
very much wanted him to to continue his education. He was had had two years of college, and he'd actually, I think, gone one summer and, and was doing very well and was prepared for medical school. So he was arguing that he could do more good huh. by finishing and going to medical school uh, than he could by serving a mission. And the conversation, and my brother was five years older, and, and he already had a sure. uh, testimony, and the conversation was, what do you do? And the, and, and, and the feelings that came out of that were that if you believe the Savior is divine, uh, not just a great teacher, but that he actually did atone for our sins and he's the risen Lord, that would influence you. Uh, if you believe that Joseph Smith saw God the Father in Jesus Christ, that would influence you if he wasn't just a great teacher. If you believe the Book of Mormon was the Word of God, then that would influence your decision. And so that night for me, for the first time, it crystallized in my mind that those were things that uh, would determine almost every decision you'd make. So and that was the conversation the two of you were having as very young men. Very really. young men. Me 15, him 20. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was five years ahead and he was doing more of the talking than I was, but I was going through a process. I had a, just a complete testimony of the Savior, but then I'd read the Book of Mormon and I felt good about Joseph Smith, but for me that night was the first time I had prayed with real intent, I suddenly realized these are really important decisions. And uh, I got a, uh, a testimony, uh, which I've come to understand the way that the Holy Ghost works with me, that the Book of Mormon is true and that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And that made all the difference in the life of Elder Cook, because from that point on, that seminal experience that he had as a young man, drove him. And remember, conversion drives behavior. And so Elder Cook is on his way. He continues to finish out his his high school career. And, uh, and then he's going to go into the mission field. And from 1960 to 1962, Elder Cook served in the British mission. They had a great, great mission president in Elder Marion D. Hanks, who was all about the Book of Mormon, all about discipleship. And uh, the missionaries in that mission became very deeply converted to the gospel and to the Book of Mormon. And then to have the added blessing of serving with Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in the mission field uh, was once again um, an incredible, incredible experience uh, for Elder Cook. And then to have them serving once again uh, in the Quorum of the Twelve together it's almost something that's it's just difficult to comprehend that their lives could have intersected in such a way. So Elder Cook serves a wonderful, momentous mission, has a great experience in England, comes home. He started at Utah State. He goes back to Utah State. And uh, when he comes back from the mission field, he reacquaints himself with Mary Gaddy. Now, he and Mary had known each other for a long time. In fact, during high school, their high school years, they had gone on double dates and had been involved in the same circles. They both were in student council and things like that. And then there was this opportunity once where they looked at each other while on a double date and said, how can we never date each other? We're always dating. It's either us and two other people. We should date each other. And that was a great, uh, great starting point to that. Uh, Elder, we, well, I just want to share this with you. Elder Cook first became, became acquainted with Mary at a seventh grade talent assembly 
this tow-headed girl gets up and sings on the sunny side of the street. And in junior high school, she had a remarkable, mature, deep voice. And Elder Cook said, I was absolutely amazed. That, that song could have been the theme for the rest of her life. She has a wonderful, bright, sunny disposition. And so on November the 30th, 1962, Elder Cook and Mary are married in the Logan Temple. And then he graduates from Utah State University in 1963 with a degree in political science. And then they move to California where Elder Cook begins his, his law degree at, Stanford, at the Stanford Law School. Now, it was the hopes of Elder Cook and Mary that they would attend Stanford, graduate with the law degree, and then just come back to Logan and live the rest of their life in Cache Valley. But that's not what happened. They end up being hired by a firm of Carr, McClellan, and Ingersoll, Thompson, and Horn. And uh, anyway, it's a great experience uh, for Elder Cook. In fact, he is able to serve in many capacities professionally. It wasn't just in law, or at least with a law firm. He ends up working in healthcare and in some other areas as well. He said this, Mary and I left Utah so that we could attend law school in Palo Alto, California. We were planning to return to Utah after graduation, but the Spirit directed that we stay in California. We lived in California for 33 years and raised our family there. And we both had many opportunities to serve. We loved the diversity of the members and their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be eternally grateful for this wonderful Latter-day Saint, the wonderful Latter-day Saints in California, who have been such a positive influence in my life. Elder Cook also serves his community for 14 years as a volunteer city attorney doing pro bono work. He said that there are a great many people outside the church who love the Savior. So when I talk about associating yourself with good people, I'm not talking about isolating yourself from the world, he said. He was called to be a bishop in their stake in California. Then he served as a counselor in the stake presidency. This is kind of an inter interesting trivia piece. But the stake president at that time was his brother Joe. And then when Joe was released, Elder Cook became the stake president of that stake in California. And I believe it was the San Francisco stake. During that time, he worked not only with English-speaking wards and congregations, but others who spoke units that spoke Spanish, Tongan, Samoan, Tagalog, Mandarin, and Cantonese. In fact, Elder Cook tells this great story. He said some of the members had little education and less money, but they have much to give. He remembers fondly one of the great men I knew who delivered bread for a living and was called into a bishopric. The man had seen ward leaders bring briefcases to their meetings, so he decided to take one too. But since he had nothing to put in it, in fact, he didn't know what to put in it, and he was uh, one who worked at a bakery, so he filled his briefcase with sourdough bread. And this humble man was sharing that bread with all of his quorum members on Sundays. And I love Elder Cook's conclusion there that you can find good people everywhere and learn from them. He also said this, that one of the most difficult challenges in our lives is to be in the world but not of the world. And our gospel doctrine makes it clear that we must live in this world to, to achieve our eternal destination. Now, one of the great experiences that Elder Cook has that's so relevant for many of us today is that in the, in the 1960s, as he lived in the San Francisco area, uh, there was a great movement there with flower children and hippies and 
those who are engaged deeply in drugs and alcohol and promiscuous sexual conduct. And there was just many members of the church who lived in that area at the time who felt that maybe living in the Bay Area of California was no longer a safe place. So with this thought that the world was becoming wicked and in that part of California many members of the church sensed that wickedness and were really considering it was time to move and many would head back to Utah. And so Elder Harold B. Lee of the Quorum of the Twelve, one of the senior members of the Quorum of the Twelve, was assigned to come to California and address those saints who were feeling like it was time to leave. Elder Lee met with a group of priesthood leaders, including Elder Cook, and told them that the Lord had not inspired the construction of the Oakland, California temple to just have all the members leave. His counsel was for members of the church to create Zion in their hearts and homes and to be a light to those among whom they lived and to focus on the ordinances and the principles of the temple. Now, Elder Cook said this, these were the four main focal points. He said, number one, presently he said, follow the prophet. Number two, he said to create the true spirit of the gospel in your hearts and in your homes. Number three, be a light to those among who you live. And number four, focus on the ordinances and principles taught in the temple. Now here's what Elder Cook said, and by the way, this is from his talk, Live by Faith, Not by Fear, October 2007, Ensign. He said, as we followed this counsel, our faith increased and our fears decreased. I believe we can raise righteous children anywhere in the world if they are taught religious principles in the home. And then Elder Cook in another message said this, he said, we just can't avoid the world. We can't have a cloistered existence. That's not the answer. We need to be in the world and not of it. And I do think that's interesting because there are many members of the church that I've met over time that want to have a cloistered existence, but we need to be out there among our fellow men and women making a difference. Elder Cook's son Larry remembers being touched that his father was so deeply respected among his business and civic associates. In fact, he said, I attended the retirement dinners honoring dad when he left his law firm and later when he stepped down from the leadership of a healthcare system. I was in awe that colleague after colleague, none of whom were members of the church, spoke often with tears about our dad and what he meant to them, how he had mentored and nurtured them, and how he had selflessly fostered their careers without any sense that it was taking time and energy away from his own. I think that's such a great, great observation and a great focal point from Elder Cook. Elder Cook shared a wonderful story in one of his talks as they were raising their children, their son Larry wanted to be an airline pilot. That was just something he always wanted to do. And remember, Elder Cook is going to follow the example of his father, where he wants his children to have goals and be heading in the right direction. And so Elder Cook became aware on one occasion that Larry no longer wanted to be an airline pilot. And changing the goal was fine. And Elder Cook proceeded to explain how Larry's various activities would help him achieve this goal. But as an afterthought, he said, Larry, last time we talked, though, you wanted to be a doctor. What has changed your mind? He answered, I still like the idea of being a doctor, but I have noticed that Uncle Joe works on Saturday mornings, and I wouldn't want to miss Saturday morning cartoons. Elder Cook said from that point on, a Saturday morning cartoon in the Cook family was any distraction from a worthwhile goal. And in his talk, Rejoice, that was given in October of 1996, 
He said, okay, what are some of the Saturday morning cartoons that distract us from attaining the joy that we desire? You know, I love posing that question to our students, and they talk about everything. I mean, from Netflix to Facebook, you know, to Twitter. So we have a lot of social media type of distractions, the Internet in general. Uh, some friends can drive us away or take us away from a goal. Sometimes even school or worthwhile pursuits can pull us away a little bit from the goals that we have. And so, yes, amen, we want to stay focused. Now, I love what Elder Cook said as he, as he still continued to talk a little bit about what it was like raising their children. He wanted to have close relationships. He has three children with each of his children. It's important, he says, for those who have leadership positions in the church that they have a relationship with their children where the children can see the virtues they have been applied in an entirely different setting than church. Whether it's working in the yard or playing sports or doing something outdoors, or in other words, it's important for our children in those settings to see their parents practicing Christ-like virtues. Now, Elder Cook said this, uh, or this is a great story to share. It was actually his son Joe recalling that his father once was really uneasy about Joe driving back to San Francisco after finishing his first semester exams at BYU. It would be late December, the roads might be snowbound, and he would be tired. At the end of the semester, Joe answered a knock on the door of his dorm room to see his dad, Elder Quentin L. Cook, standing there, having flown up from the Bay Area to be his son's driving companion for the trip home. Joe says that uh, that was not only a powerful manifestation of his dad's love for him, but the talk time that they had on the trip home, filled with discussions about gospel principles and repeated testimonies of the Savior, became one of the truly formative moments in young Joe's vision of what he wanted by way of testimony for his own future life as a father. Elder Cook has taught his children to set goals to evaluate their actions and their activities. They also had goals as a family. And Elder Cook believed that if a family observes appropriate religious practices, such as family prayer, scripture study, and home evening, children can be raised righteously anywhere, he said. As Elder Cook was living a successful life professionally, which transitioned, like I said a minute ago, from a law firm and then president and CEO of a California healthcare system, which was merged with Sutter Health, where he became vice chairman. But during that time, Elder Cook serves as a regional representative, and then that transitions into an area authority. And then he's called to be a member of the second quorum of the 70 in 1996. And then in 1998, he's called into the first quorum of the 70. Elder Cook also serves as the executive director of the church's missionary department and plays a really important role in, develop, in the development of Preach My Gospel. And uh, one of the things he said about that was that the hand of the Lord was in it from day one. Every member of the first presidency in quorum of the 12 made significant contributions. But we know that Elder Cook played a pivotal role in Preach My Gospel. And uh, once again, we could talk about that, but we know the influence that Preach My Gospel has had on so many. And then in 19, sorry, then in 2007, President Hinckley invited Elder Cook to his office. Elder Cook said, I think if someone would have called me on the phone to issue this apostolic calling, I would have been sure that it was a prank phone call. But as the prophet issued the call, Elder Cook said it was wonderful it was short and it was sweet, but I'm sure it was also very powerful. And once again, our apostles and prophets 
our saints in every way. And no one of not one of them ever receives a call like that and says, "Oh my gosh, it's about time. I've been waiting for this for years." No, they always are completely humbled to the core. You know, one of the foundational pieces of Elder Cook's ministry has been this idea to let our lights shine. He said, I think the biggest mistake that most Latter-day Saints make is hiding who they are. Many members don't tell friends and associates who they are and what they believe and are dragged into very difficult situations. Those who identify themselves as Latter-day Saints and make clear what they believe have far fewer problems, he said. Let me conclude today with one final thought, one final story. And it really is repetitive of something I've, I've said, but I want to call your attention to it. This is a talk that Elder Cook gave called The Sunny Side of the Street. It was a, it was a, a devotional that he gave at Brigham Young University, Idaho, on January, January 26, 2021. And in that talk, um, he said something like this. He said, Mary and I both turned 80 last year, and on November the 30th, we celebrated our 58th wedding anniversary. It seems like yesterday when we were your age. One of the surprises in life as we age is that most of the time we don't feel any different than we did in the past. My mind tells me that I can still throw perfect passes in football and accomplish all the physical feats of youth. That, of course, is not true, and I realized it. Throwing a first pitch at the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball game a few years ago, I learned that if I did not, that if I did not want to throw the ball on the ground, I had to aim above the catcher's head, not his mitt. I no longer have the arm power to throw the ball in a straight line. But to be honest, I do not feel any different in terms of basic things that matter most at age 80 than I did when, when I was your age. Perhaps this is one of the reasons he said I feel this way is that my beautiful wife Mary is a wonderful and righteous as ever. And let me reminisce a little bit about her. It will lead into the message I want to leave with you. I first saw Mary when we were in seventh grade at Logan Junior High School. Now I know that I already told this story, but this is so good. So bear with me here for a minute. She sang on a talent assembly. When she walked on the stage, she had a big smile, blonde, almost white hair, and bright blue eyes. She looked like she would have a soprano voice. Our entire class was surprised by her rich, mature alto voice and her incredible rendition of a favorite popular song in those days on the sunny side of the street. And that is the title of my message today. So Elder Cook is going to go on and share this wonderful message. He's going to quote a couple of his colleagues, our living prophets. He said, President Dallin H. Oaks at our last general conference titled one of his talks, Be of Good Cheer, based on the Savior's admonition that we read in John 16, 33. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. President Oaks' wonderful message declares our unshakable faith in the doctrine of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ guides our steps, and gives us joy. And then he said that President Henry B. Eyring has counseled members to be wise optimists in tumultuous times. We live in a time that is cast down, uncivil, negative, angry, and tumultuous as any time in my life. <clears throat> Many people across the world seem despondent and discouraged. Part of this is because of the devastating effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, but part is deeper and of more concern. Being optimistic and being a good cheer, a good cheer, Elder Cook said, is a decision that each of us can make. This attitude usually begins with being grateful. And I am thankful that President Russell M. Nelson chose gratitude 
for his message to the world last November. He had received heavenly guidance to teach this profound principle. Gratitude is the first step towards optimism and cheer. Well, anyway, there's more to this message, but I want to get to a concluding thought. To be one, we can learn from past and prepare for the future. He said, many years ago, some of my younger cousins had an inspiring experience with our grandfather, Crozier Kimball. Their mothers had assigned them to do a service project at Grandpa's farm. They were promised that they would be rewarded with Grandma's fabulous homemade cake. My cousin, Kathy Galloway, who shared this account with me, was about 14 at the time. She told me the cake was not her favorite dessert, but she said the brown sugar and butter frosting was better than amazing, and Grandma would not let me eat out of the bowl, much to my dismay. So it was worth putting up with the cake to be able to eat the frosting. They ate sack lunches and worked all day. Kathy worked in the house and was highly motivated by the smells coming from the kitchen. When they had completed their task, they were heading to the kitchen for their reward. The door was blocked by Grandpa. He sat down on the piano bench and invited the cousins to sit on the floor. He thanked them for their hard work and then said, Before we eat cake, there is something I need to say to you. I do not believe any of you is old enough to understand what I'm going to tell you, so I command your spirits to remember this information because there will come a time in your lives when you will need to know and act on what I'm about to share with you. My grandfather, Heber Kimball, <clears throat> and other of your pioneer ancestors faced physical challenges that you cannot imagine, even in your wildest imaginations. Thankfully, you will never know what they endured as they crossed the plains. And they learned one thing really fast. Either they worked together and loved and strengthened and nursed and supported and sustained each other, or no one survived. This is one of the great legacies they've left to you. Tears began to roll quietly down his cheeks. He took out his handkerchief and wiped his eyes and continued, In my calling as a patriarch and as your grandfather, when I look down the corridors of time, when you will become parents and grandparents in Zion, my heart aches for you. You will face emotional and spiritual challenges that most of your pioneer ancestors could never have imagined in their wildest imaginations. Your generation simply refuses to honor the great legacy of love and service they left to you. And so many of you will fail because you will not be able to survive on your own. Then with big tears in his eyes and a spirit-to-spirit -spirit connection, he concluded, We need each other. In addition to sharing our testimonies of the gospel with one another, our duty is to love and serve and strengthen and nourish and support and sustain each other especially in our family. Please remember that in the last days, your very key to spiritual survival may depend upon your willingness to work together and to love and serve. Now let us go eat cake. Kathy says she can still feel his hug as she walked into the kitchen. Now, what a great lesson from one of Elder Cook's relatives, Crozier Kimball, a direct descendant of Heber C. Kimball. Well, as I conclude the, that message, I wanted to share with you that uh, I am grateful for Elder Quentin L. Cook. I sustain him as a prophet, seer, and revelator, and that his teachings have blessed my life. I invite all of us to dig into his teachings in more depth and to uh, really savor on the words and on the messages that he has shared with us, especially recently. Those words and those teachings will bless our lives. I know that. 
And thank you so much for being with us today. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week.